Shalom. This is Mark Robinson, Executive Director of Jewish Awareness Ministries. Welcome to Jewish Awareness Podcast, a teaching ministry of Jewish Awareness Ministries. On Friday nights at our headquarters, we host a Bible study. Generally, we do verse-by-verse studies of different books of the Bible. These studies can be viewed live through the JAM Facebook live stream platform on Fridays. If you have questions or would like additional information, go to our website, jewishawareness.org. Email us at office at jewishawareness.org or call us at 919 919- Two seven five four four seven seven. Enjoy the Bible study. Chapter thirteen, in verses ten through thirteen tonight, we are going to go through. Um, tonight's study, I have a lot of quotes because we're going to look at something, and I want you to understand it from the uh, from the mouth of those who uh, are proponents of it. But what we're looking at in these verses, ten through thirteen of Hebrews thirteen. The contrast here is between believers and non-believers, which, if you remember, is one of the major themes of this book. Uh, It's written to Hebrews, Jewish people, who are either professing believers, they're not truly saved, or possessing believers, they are truly saved. And along that line, there are five warning passages warning those who are just professors, not truly saved, to, to not go back into the Mosaic Law mosaic system, temple worship, that type of thing, but to come on to true faith. Well, here we have a contrast between the professing and the possessing believers, uh, between believers and non-believers. Specifically, uh, those Jews who insist on continuing on under the Mosaic covenant, rejecting the better sacrifice of the Messiah, cannot come to the altar which believers approach. And it talks about an altar here. Now, the altar that's talked about is not the Lord's table. It's not communion. It's not the Lord's table. It's not the, certainly not the Catholic Mass at all uh, as well. But it's used to show that those who have fled, if you remember Hebrews 6, 18 through 19, those who have fled to Jesus have access to God in contrast to those who do not have access to God. Because the, the difference of a, a believer and unbeliever is a believer has access to God through Jesus. It's the only way. Uh, chapters 8 and 9 and 10, for example, dealt with that. There has to be a mediator. Jesus is that mediator. Uh, you can be religious as these others were at this time, and many are today. But if you don't have Jesus as your Lord and Savior, uh, you don't get to God, no matter how religious you are. So the writer of Hebrews is concluding his appeal that these professing Jewish believers and all who embrace the Old Covenant, meaning the Mosaic system, cannot be saved unless they come to the Messiah for salvation. To hold on to the Mosaic Covenant is to reject the sufficiency of the sacrifice of Christ. Now, many religions today do the same type of thing. If one wants to embrace their religion, you can name whatever religion you want to. Uh, but if they re- embrace that religious system, Catholicism, whatever it is, um, uh, they can't come to Christ. Uh, they can't be saved. 
Uh, one has to recognize a religious system does not save you. Only Jesus does, so you have to turn from that religious system, recognize uh, the futility of a religious system to, get, to impart righteousness to you. It only comes through Jesus. So he's exhorting them uh, to come to the Lord. He exhorts those who are uh, possessing believers also to leave the old covenant ways as well as the rabbinical teachings and embrace Jesus willing to suffer the reproach. Because even uh, believers, possessing believers, sometimes are uh, susceptible to the allurements of our past, if you will. Um, and what we'll see as we get into this, <clears throat> it is perhaps a, a greater... I, I don't want to diminish the allurement of a religious system that anybody grew up with all their life and say they got saved at 25, 30, 35, 40 years of age, and the allurement that that religious system might have in pulling you back uh, under its umbrella and under its teachings, uh, however unbiblical or not uh, it might be. Uh, there's certainly an allurement there. Sometimes it's the pressure of family or whatever the case might be. But I would submit to you that it is more difficult um, for, for a Jewish person because the Mosaic law was given by God. Uh, the sacrifices were given by God. All that under that Mosaic law, the ceremonies and all that. Uh, and so it was at one point biblical. Biblical in the sense that it was the operative system. That's how God wanted you to worship. And so it would be very, and very difficult, certainly back at this point when the temple was still standing. That allurement today for a Jewish person who comes to the Lord is still there. I've talked to numbers of them uh, who are just um, very susceptible of, of being drawn back into uh, Mosaism. And, and even today when there's no temple and Mosaism is an admixture of Moses and the rabbis, which it was, by the way, at this time to one degree or another as well, but it's a, it's a very, very can be a difficult uh, pull uh, on, on the life of someone, more so perhaps than, than another religion. But be that as it may, um, the warning here uh, is to true believers as well, come out and suffer the reproach. Because sometimes we have to just determine that we are going to take the step to separate understanding that we are going to be persecuted for what we do. By family members, for example. You know, I, I never forget one of the first Jewish believers I perhaps met, other than myself, I met myself. But anyway, um, Alan. I've told the story of Alan. Alan was, Alan Lips, Alan was the photographer at our wedding <coughs> last century. Um, it was last century, but anyway. Um, and when Alan, Alan married S Sandy, who was a believer, a Gentile gal who loved the Lord, and Alan wasn't saved. And some of you have heard this story, um, but I'm going to tell it again. Um, Alan, his marriage was not good. Alan was uh, an adulterer, 
Alan was a kleptomaniac. He loved to steal. Uh, he, would, he would steal just to steal. It may not be anything of, of any value, just that he could do it. Uh, he'd lift a pack of gum or whatever the case might be and to steal. Um, and this drove Sandy, you know, beside herself. She didn't know what to do. Um, she witnessed to her uh, to him, and, and that and Alan wasn't interested. Alan came from, he wasn't he wasn't uh, religious at all at this point. Well, Sandy uh, uh, prayed for uh, prayed for him, and uh, ultimately, um, what ended up happening is Alan woke up one morning, and he uh, and I think at this point in his life they were separated. But Alan woke up one morning, and I think it was at his parents' home. He had moved in for a brief time with his parents, if I remember all the details correctly. But he woke up one morning, and both of his arms were paralyzed. He couldn't move his arms. Well, if you, if you can't move your arms, they're completely paralyzed and lifeless. And, and well, you can't steal. They're, that solved that problem. Uh, you can't run around and commit adultery because you can't drive and, you know, and uh, he was he was almost basically an invalid, uh, with his both arms paralyzed. He went to doctors. Doctors said we don't know what's up. There's no reason for this, but it was, it is. Um, and um, <clears throat> Sandy would come visit him, and his parents took care of him and uh, fed him and just did everything they had to do to to allow him to to go on in life, and uh, it was not a very good existence. Sandy one time came to, the, to visit Alan, and uh, he was just at wit's end. He said, I would do anything to have the use of my arms back. So Sandy said, well, why don't we pray? You agree with me? Why don't we pray and ask Jesus to give you your use of your arms back. And he said, I'm, I'm willing to pray to anybody. I'll pray to Jesus with you. They did. The next morning, Alan woke up, and both of his arms were back. He had full, full motion with his arms. But he had one finger that he couldn't move. So God had given him everything back except one finger. Well, he started to attend church with Sandy, and... Um, over a period of weeks or months, I'm not sure how long it was, um, at the one service, an invitation was given, and Alan was under conviction and, and went down uh, to the front, talked with someone, and said, someone led him to the Lord. He accepted the Lord. Uh, Sandy was certainly very thrilled that this would take place. And they went home that night. He woke up the next morning. He had used full use of that finger. His parents, who had taken him in, he was a philanderer, he was a kleptomaniac, he was a louse as a father. When they heard that he had accepted Jesus, they would have nothing to do with him. They brought their uh, rabbi from up, and this was in Florida, they brought their rabbi from when they lived up in New York, they flew him down to Florida. They had a funeral for him. They purchased a casket and a plot, had the service, 
Our son is now dead to us and put the casket in the ground and covered it with dirt and we will no longer have anything to do with him. Alan had to suffer the reproach of being a believer. He had become, obviously, I think, a much better husband, a much better father, stopped stealing, stopped running around. But it was a worse sin in his parents' eyes to believe in Jesus than to steal and adultery and be a bad dad and all of that type of thing. Well, sometimes we're going to suffer reproach, maybe not to that extent, but it will happen in the Christian life. So when we look at this, and this is what is challenging the believers here uh, about. In verse 10, we have an altar whereof they have no right to eat, which serve the tabernacle. So we, being true believers, the possessing believers, uh, we have an altar. And again, that's not the Lord's table. This is, it's using a figure. Uh, in, in biblical times, in temple times, when you would come to God, you come to God through a sacrifice, the sacrifice put on the altar. And as believers, we have an altar. We have a way to come to God, uh, an altar through Jesus that unbelievers don't have, uh, where they have no right to eat, which serve the tabernacle. So if you're going to commit your life to the tabernacle, or the temple, which is what it's talking about, which was a shadow of things to come, even though that was given by God to the Jewish people, you have no right to eat at this altar. You have no right to come to God because you only come to God through the better sacrifice, which has been covered extensively in this book. Only believers have a right to come to this altar. Now, right here, Kenneth Wee says it's a technical term used in the law courts of a legal right. It's also used in John 1.12, but as many as received him, to them gave he power. Now that's the King James. The right to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. Power there is the legal authority. The right. In other words, when we believe on his name, we have the legal authority. We have the power vested in us um, to become children of God. We have that legal right through what Jesus has done for us. Those who go to a religious system, if I can put it in a more general way, have no legal right, no legal authority. No, you know, the, the, I said it earlier, the, the power of attorney. The power of attorney is what? When we, the, power of, the, the legal right to sign something and it's binding. It's legal. Every, any court, any judge will accept it. Well, we have that right, but those who come to God through a religious system have no legal authority, no power whatsoever, no legal right to come to God. Then verse 11. For the bodies of those beasts whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned without the camp. And he's just... Uh, very common, very, uh, all, this would have been a, a very uh, well-known practice. Remember, the temple is still standing. And when the uh, bodies of beasts, uh, the blood is brought into the sanctuary, 
by the high priest for sins. What did they do with the bodies? They burned them. Uh, but they burned the body outside the camp, without, or outside the camp, away from the people. They would have understood this because they saw this every year. This was Yom Kippur. This was the Day of Atonement sacrifice. And the blood was brought into, ultimately, the Holy of Holies and shed for the people, or sprinkled for the, for the people. And then the body of the beast would be taken outside of the city, outside of the gates, and burned. You didn't want that to be around because it was a sacrifice. Then verses 12 and 13. Wherefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify, set apart the people with his own blood, suffered without the gate. Let us go therefore unto him without the camp, or outside the camp, bearing his reproach. And, and without the gate or outside the camp is talking about the same thing. Jesus, that he would sanctify the people of his own blood, suffered outside the gate, outside the city. Let us go therefore unto him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. Now, Jesus, we know, suffered without or outside the gate. His people and his, pre and his priesthood rejected him, though. In John 19, 20, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near to the city, not in the city, was near to the city. By the way, when we go to Israel, uh, we will go, Lord willing, uh, to the garden tomb, uh, which I believe is the original place. And just, uh, I don't know how we found out about it. Dan knows more about it. But Dan got an email, email text? Uh, Facebook message. Facebook message. They, they got a Facebook message this past week, right? Past week or so? Anyway, one of the men, uh, one of the docents, one of the guides at the Garden Tomb listened to our shalomshalom.radio station. And he loved it. And so, he, and again, I didn't see the email message, but basically he said, you know, is there any way, I guess he said, is there any way I can tell people about this? Is, is this kind of, Correct? Anyway, it's close enough. Close uh, enough. Close enough. Okay. Uh, and so uh, Dan communicated to him that we do have uh, business cards to advertise our radios. He said, well, bring me 100 or 200 of these that I can give out to people at the Garden Tomb. So we're bringing uh, 200, I think we wrapped up, uh, when we go to the Garden Tomb to give to this man um, that he can give out to people. I'm hoping he'll put it on the desk at the gift shop. There's a little gift shop in the garden tomb. Uh, and, and every group, they don't go, they go in uh, the entrance gate and they go out the gift shop. These guys know what they're doing. Um, and, and everybody's buying stuff. So I'm hoping they put a bunch of them on the counter. Uh, but anyway, I, I found that interesting. Um, we will go to the uh, garden tomb, Lord willing, and that it's outside the city, outside the gate where he came. So what we have here, the exhortation here is for Jewish believers and the need for them to wholly, totally follow Jesus, not holding on the old ways, which in this case is the Mosaic law and its practices. Now, by extension, this would apply to any of us who've come out of whatever religion it might be. That's not biblical whatsoever. We need to leave that behind and fully, totally, wholly uh, serve the Lord. 
But here the context is to, to Jewish believers. Jewish believers are commanded to come out of the camp and onto him, bearing his reproach as he, Jesus, suffered without the gate. The camp now has to be the practice of Judaism. The worship system, the religious system that they had at that time, which would have been an admixture of Mosaism and Judaism, the religion of the day, which would have included the teaching of the Pharisees, the oral law, all of that type of thing. Leave all of that behind and come wholly unto Jesus. Don't let that drag you back uh, because Jesus is so much better, which is what Hebrews up to this point is all about. The camp thus is the practice of Judaism. Unto him must speak of the body of Messiah, or what we would call the church, the ecclesia, the called out ones. So uh, get out of the camp and come unto him, bearing his reproach. So it's leaving Judaism behind and coming to uh, the church, the ecclesia, that type of thing. Um, John MacArthur said this about it. For the Jews to whom Hebrews was written, Separation from the world system meant separation from Judaism. Whatever significance and importance the Old Covenant and traditional ceremonies, regulations, and standards of Judaism once had, they are now invalid. God now does his work completely outside the camp of Judaism. But again, this had to be a little bit difficult because this is something that God had given to them. Forget about the, uh, the mixture of rabbinics within it. But for 1,500 years, roughly, uh, close, you know, since Moses, uh, God had given this system of worship through the temple, through the sacrifices, through the ceremonies. So after 1,500 years of a God-given system, they're now told to leave it behind. It could be difficult. Kenneth Wiest, in his commentary, said this, Jerusalem was the center of the apostate Judaism that crucified its Messiah and continued the temple sacrifices in defiance of God's plainly revealed will, Hebrews 9.8. When the Jew would leave the temple's uh, sacrifices in order to place his faith in their fulfillment, the crucified risen Messiah, he would necessarily be separated, thus set apart, from that Judaism which he had formerly espoused. The word sanctify in the Greek means to set apart for God. Thus our Lord, by becoming a sacrifice under the jurisdiction of the New Testament and as an outcast from Israel, set apart from the First Testament and Israel, the Jew, who placed his faith in him and consecrated that person to God. It was with his own blood he did this. The writer now exhorts his first century readers to leave apostate Judaism and the temple sacrifices and placing their faith in the Messiah's high priest, bear his reproach, the reproach of exclusion from the Jewish commonwealth. This exhortation was addressed, of course, to those Jews who, while they had outwardly left the temple, yet had not placed their faith in Messiah and were in danger of going back to the sacrifices. But it was also a uh, concern to even true believers not to go back and get entangled in that. 
Well, this type of concern has risen in the last 50 years, maybe 40 years. In our Christian world, among Jewish believers, with the rise of Jewish believers coming to the Lord, this very type of problem has developed. It's referred to today as Messianic Judaism. Perhaps you've heard about it. Perhaps you haven't heard about it. I want to introduce you to it. And it's in complete opposition, I believe, to what this Hebrews passage is talking about. And in many ways, it's contrary to the commands that are given here. So turn the page over. Very briefly, a definition of Messianic Judaism. These definitions come from people in the movement. I didn't make these up. Richard Nickel, who was the leader of Rock Israel Congregation in Needham, Massachusetts, defines this movement as, quote, an expression of Jewish faith built upon the essential truth that Jewish people who embrace the risen Messiah of Israel, Yeshua, are obliged to partner with God in securing the ongoing existence and vitality of the Jewish people worldwide, while simultaneously upholding Yeshua's message of love and redemption for the entire world. So he defines Messianic Judaism as uh, really a balancing act. I don't know how one can do this and, and, and do both of them the same. Partnering with the Jewish people and being involved with them and their existence in, in the world, but at the same time communicating to them the need of Yeshua, Jesus, and his message of love and redemption. Well, that's difficult when the Jewish world rejects Jesus uh, and wants nothing to do with him. Here's a statement from the 23rd Annual uh, Union of Messianic Jewish Congregations Conference on July 31st, 2002, taken from their website. The Union of Messianic Jewish Congregations at their 23rd Annual UMJC Conference on July 31st, 2002. So this is 23. That brings it, uh, they started in 1979 then. Um, defines it, meaning Messianic Ju Judaism, a movement of Jewish congregations and congregation-like groupings committed to Yeshua the Messiah that embrace the covenantal responsibility of Jewish life and identity rooted in Torah, expressed in tradition, renewed and applied in the context of the New Covenant. Now, that's fraught with difficulty. Uh, they are to embrace the covenantal responsibility of Jewish life and identity rooted in the Torah. That's the Mosaic Law. Are, are Jewish believers to embrace the Mosaic Law? Well, the whole argument of Hebrews, no. It's been superseded with a much better thing. Uh, expressed in tradition. It's tradition of the rabbis. Are we to follow the rabbinic teachings? Are we to follow the Bible? Uh, renewed and applied in the context of the New Covenant. So let's try to adapt it as best we can to what the New Covenant teaches and live it out that way. It's, it's almost impossible. Jeffrey S. Wasserman, in his book, uh, Messianic Jewish Congregations, Who Sold This Business to the Gentiles? But anyway, uh, maybe a cute title. But anyway, present-day Messianic Jewish congregations are made up of both Jewish and Gentiles believers in Jesus who've rejected historic Christian congregational expressions as being Gentile. 
They have chosen to express, express their religious identity and corporate worship in a more genuinely Jewish style. Thus, they may include Hebrew liturgy and prayers, Israel-style hymnody and dance, the celebration of Jewish festivals, Sabbath observance, and in some cases, strict adherence to the 613 commandments of the Mosaic Law. Well, lots of problems with this. And uh, one of them is uh, the strict observance to the 630 commandment, the 13 commandments of the uh, Mosaic Law. You better rebuild the temple. You better offer sacrifices. There's not strict observance to, this, to the law at all. This is, uh, this is their definition of Messianic Judaism. And uh, it is just not biblical whatsoever. Now, what's the history of Messianic Judaism? Very briefly. In America, and this is, in America is the primary place that Messianic Judaism grew up and, 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 and really exploded. You'll find it in different parts of the world today. You'll find it in Israel today. But it's America grew up. In America, the movement evolved from what was originally known as Hebrew Christianity into today's Messianic Jewish movement. This process was hotly contested by the American Hebrew Christians who immigrated from Europe and most of whom died by the middle of the 20th century on the 1950s. It was also strenuously opposed by the British Hebrew Christians until 1975. The old guard of American Hebrew Christians was largely fundamentalist Christians of Jewish origin who were very conscious of their Jewishness, avidly supported the Zionist movement, were active in their opposition to anti-Semitism and eagerly sought to promote the gospel within the nation of Israel. But most of them saw no room for what is now the Messianic movement. This is by Baruch Mayaz, his book, Judaism is Not Jewish. Um, and in the turn of the century, the Hebrew, up until the, the, the 1970s, really, uh, the Hebrew Christian movement was very strong. And they rejected Messianic Judaism almost totally, with a few exceptions here and there. Uh, I could mention names. It's not uh, important at, at this point. Some of the, the old, they're with the Lord now, most of them, if not all of them. Uh, but he goes on. These men, uh, Maurice Rubens, uh, Sabatai Rohol, uh, founded the Hebrew Christian Alliance in America in 1915. Rohold was elected to serve as the Alliance's first president. The Alliance was to serve as a fellowship of Jewish believers who worshipped in their various Christian churches. Heated discussion as to the wisdom, biblical grounds, and feasibility of establishing distinctly Hebrew Christian congregations were held, and the idea was firmly rejected. We don't need to establish distinct Hebrew Christian congregations. We need to be part of a Bible-believing fundamentalist church in whatever city that we live in. We reject what is today known as Messianic Judaism. They also they, they met and they would have hundreds of people, I guess hundreds of people attend. Uh, and they would, they would talk about, you know, one of the things they discussed, what was the best terminology for a Jewish person who believed in Jesus? Completed Jew, converted Jew, Jewish Christian, Messianic Jew, Hebrew Christian. They, they, they just threw all the names uh, 
into the pot and they discussed them. And without telling you why they rejected uh, so many of them, uh, except for one as being the best expression, uh, they, um, they embraced the term Hebrew Christian as the best expression, not Jewish Christian. Because Jewish is oftentimes in the mind of Jewish people equated with Judaism. But Hebrew is ethnicity. And Christian means follower of Christ, it's clear. Where a Messianic Jew, for example, uh, Orthodox Jews are Messianic Jews. They don't believe in Jesus, but they believe in the coming of the Messiah. Anyway, they, they accepted the best explanation, the best phrase, terminology for a Jewish believer is Hebrew Christian. So they called it the Hebrew Christian Movement, Hebrew Christian Alliance of America, Hebrew Christian International Movement, so on. Now, in 1971, Martin Chernoff became the president of the Hebrew Christian uh, American uh, Alliance, I guess it is, um, he, uh, Hebrew Christian Alliance in America. And uh, he led the move toward the acceptance of rabbinic tradition, Martin Chernoff. Uh, just earlier, um, and, and that's the time Jews for Jesus was rising up and that type of thing. Now, this comes from a report, Missiology and International Review, Messianic, you know, Progress Report, anyway, 1977. I want to read this. Uh, the present-day Messianic Judaism movement has its origins in the Hebrew Christian Alliance of America, which was established in 1915. James Hutchins writes, quote, The origin of this movement must be seen as an outgrowth of the old Hebrew Christian movement in the U.S., if one wishes to pinpoint the substantive beginnings of Messianic Judaism per se, I would suggest the biennial meeting of the Hebrew Christian Alliance of America held in Bradenton, Florida in the summer of 1973. There, a concerted effort was made by the Young Turks of the Alliance to have the name changed from Hebrew Christian Alliance of America to the Messianic Jewish, Jewish Alliance of America. While the actual name change did not take place until the alliance met in the summer of 75, the 1973 attempt reflected a growing desire on the part of many Jewish believers to have their identity as Jews remained intact once they became believers. Now, some of you know that for many years I served with Friends of Israel Gospel Ministry. Friends of Israel initially was led by Victor Buxbazen. Victor was a Polish Jewish man believer, obviously, who uh, emigrated from Poland and came to the United States and became the director around 1940 in, of the Friends of Israel Gospel Ministry. He was part of the Hebrew Christian Alliance group and rejected Messianic Judaism and, and, and congregation, that type of thing. When he was getting ready to retire in the early 1970s and Marvin Rosenthal was going to take over the leadership of Friends of Israel. And I served under Marv starting in um, 1981, I guess it was. Uh, 1981, yes. Uh, as I remember, we got married in 84, I remember that. But anyway, um, Marv told me, Victor took him, there were, it was in Philadelphia where they lived, and he took Marv with him, because Marv was going to take over the ministry, to the meeting in Bradenton, Florida, that is referenced here. And Marvin said it was one of the saddest things he's seen uh, for many and many years. 
Uh, and the young Turks, what they did, these young Turks would be young people in their 20s, 30s, who had nothing to do with the Hebrew Christian Alliance, joined it at the last moment, the last six months or so, and just inundated the meeting, having been part of this alliance for a very brief time. And uh, their numbers overwhelmingly outnumbered the old people, the old alliance. And so they voted, led by Martin Shirinov, I gather, to change the name, and they took over the organization. And today, it's the United the Messianic Jewish Alliance of America. It was not very kosher, what they did. In 1975, Phil Goebel, a Gentile believer, published a manual titled, Everything You Need to Grow a Messianic Synagogue. American Board of Missions of the Jews, Now Chosen People Ministries, you reviewed the manual in their magazine of 1976, January, in the magazine, they attribute the beginning of Messianic synagogues to this Gentile believer, Phil Goebel. Now, that's, that, that's a brief history. I could give you a lot more history, but I'm not going to. You don't, you don't care about it. But I wanted to introduce you to it. Um, here are some of the problems. There's doctrinal problems in the movement. Rich Robinson and Ruth Rosen, The Challenge of Our Messianic Movement, Part 2. They served with Jews for Jesus, wrote this. One of the major challenges before us is that some highly intelligent, sincere, and well-intentioned teaching members of the Mish Mishpoka, which, are, which means family, uh, are developing a theology that to us seems to be straying from Scripture, a theology which would set us against one another. They do not represent the majority of people in any one messianic organization, but their influence is being felt in various organizations and congregations. Well, you know, a little leaven, what? Leavens the whole lump. So what are some of the doctrinal issues and concerns? Uh, these are not all of them. I think I put down four of them. Number one is syncretism. You know what syncretism is? It's trying to um, meld together two opposite things that can't meld together. It's like trying to mix oil and water. When you mix oil and water, what happens? They separate. They, separate. It, it, they can't mix. They don't mix. It's just it's impossible. Syncretism is, is taking two things that should... You know, it's, it's like... Um, it's like making a uh, Christian mosque. You know, can you, you know, even though some in our world today are trying for Islam, you know, Christianity and Islam, they don't mix, you know, you know, it, it, it's an, you know, anyway, syncretism. Many in the Messianic Judaism movement see the Jewishness of Jewish believers as seemingly more important than our identity as followers of the Messiah or Christians. That's literally what Christian means. Christosianos, follower of Christ, follower of the Messiah. The emphasis on being Jew Jewish usually, usually takes the form of adopting worship practices more closely aligned with the rabbinic world than the Bible-believing church. One would think that the unbiblical syncretism of these practices with New Testament truth, which is what the Hebrews is addressing, would be obvious to the leaders of this movement. Seemingly, it is not. And... and the leaders have most of the responsibility. Most of the sheep 
what what is what is the what is the you all, you've heard it a hundred times I'm sure. What is the main characteristic of a sheep? Well, the, the bad is the noise they make. They're dumb. They're stupid. Thank you. You know they they just follow. They follow. They're stupid. They'll follow anything. Um, so most of the sheep look to the leaders, right or wrong. Uh, that's just the way it is, unfortunately. It shouldn't be, but that's the way it often is. So he goes on and says, um, the syncretism of these ongoing practices, or I say, would be obvious to the leaders. Seemingly it is not. The wearing of kippah, head coverings, yarmulke, uh, bar and bar mitzvahs, the present-day festivals of Israel, such as Yom Kippur and Passover, and a host of other practices are all rooted in rabbinic Judaism and not the Bible. The focal point of a believer's life should be Jesus, not his cultural background, certainly not a religious practice that embraces a system in opposition to biblical truth and the messiahship of Jesus. Certain religious cultural practices of Jewish, Jewish people might be beneficial as a teaching tool, but not as a worship model for a congregation. There's the difference. They adopt it as a worship model. This is part and parcel of what we do in worship. They're not doing it just for teaching or evangelism. This is part of our corporate worship that they say God wants us to do. Paul said this, Philippians 3, 8, 9. Yet, yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ and be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, self-righteousness, but that which is through the faith of Christ, imputed righteousness, the righteousness which is of God by faith. A Jewish believer's main identity should not be his Jewishness. Just as anybody here, your main identity is not being a man, being a woman, being Irish, being uh, Mexican, being whatever the case might be. Your main identity is in Jesus. In Christ, there's neither male nor female, Jew or Gentile. We're all one. That's our identity. And we are not to hold up as our main identity our cultural background. Too many people do. And it's very believers I'm talking about. Uh, desire to be Jewish, and many instances to be accepted as part of the Jewish community, can lead to compromises that can ultimately reject some of the basic foundational doctrines of the Christian faith. And you'll see this shortly. Secondly, it's the rebuilding of the middle wall of partition. Ephesians 2, 14 and 15. For he is our peace, which had made both one, had broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of two, one new man, so making peace. The law of ordinances, Mosaic law. It's that enmity with us. God has made a new man, Jew and Gentile in Christ. The middle wall of partition in the temple area that separated the Gentiles. They had, a, they had a sign. Gentiles, you are not allowed to go beyond this wall. I'm taking your life into your hands. That middle wall of partition has been broken down. And we all have equal access to God, Jew or Gentile through Jesus. What Messianic Judaism is doing is rebuilding the wall. Um, let me read the, um, 
Messianic Judaism either overtly or subtly is denying this truth. Here's another quote from Robin and Robinson and Rosen. Now, this Robin's no, no uh, relationship to me, by the way. Uh, Mark Kinzer is the executive director of Messianic Jewish Theological Institute, which trains many of our up-and-coming Messianic leaders. He is also the spiritual leader of Congregation Zerah Avraham. And, and this is a little bit old, a few years old, so I'm not sure if this is still true of him. A Messianic Jewish congregation in Ann Harbor, Michigan, and he's the author of a recently published booklet titled, The Nature of Messianic Judaism. Judaism is genus, genus, I think? Messianic is species. The very title of his booklet sets forth a troubling, programmatic statement. For those who are trying to remember their biology, the genus is the larger division made up of smaller related species. The title of Kinzer's booklet essentially reverses the place that following Jesus is to occupy in our lives. That is not to say that Kinzer does not love and follow Yeshua, Jesus, but we cannot downplay the ramifications of his statement that being a follower of Jesus is a subdivision of being Jewish. The fact that Jewish tradition has rejected the claim of Yeshua's Messiahship does not preclude Messianic Jewish identification with that tradition, even to the point where the Jewish people and Judaism, always interpreted through a Messianic lens, serves as the primary locus of social identifying. So the genus that he is saying is Judaism. The most important thing is we're Jewish. Sub to that is our identity with Jesus. It is completely reversed from what it should be. The most important identification for all of us, doesn't matter, what, again, whether you're Jewish or Gentile, whatever, whatever your background, our identity primarily, first and foremost, should be as a follower of Jesus, as a child of God. Everything else is subsumed under that, whatever that, whatever else might be. Galatians says it this way in chapter 6. As many as desire to make a fair show in the flesh, they constrain you to be circumcised, only lest they should suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. For neither they themselves who are circumcised keep the law, but desire to have you circumcised, that they may glory in your flesh. But God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me, and I unto the world. This is the book of Galatians, the Judaizers. They, they were glorying in the flesh. Hey, I'm Jewish. I'm more, and then there's a pride that comes with this. I'm Jewish, I'm better than Gentiles, and, uh, and there's this movement uh, to separate Jewish believers from Gentile believers uh, in many ways because we are better. That is sin, that is wrong, this is what Judea, uh, the Judaizers are doing and what Galatians is speaking against. And it does that today. Go on to the, to the back of this page. The deity of Christ. Unfortunately, the deity of Christ is an issue in some messianic circles. 
It is a problem in some churches in Israel and a, and a Messianic congregation in the San Diego area split when some of the congregation denied the deity of Jesus. Now, let me just mention, in, um, back in, uh, I think it was around 2013 or 14, there's a, a magazine printed in Israel called Israel Today. And the number of congregations in Israel that rejected the deity of Jesus was growing so quickly in number that this magazine, which is a messianic magazine geared to believers in, in the Lord, Jewish believers in the Lord, gave two issues over to refuting the movement and the saying that Jesus is not God. That's how much of a problem it had become in Israel. It's still a problem to this day. And a lot of the congregations in Israel that purport to be followers of Jesus don't believe that Jesus is God. They've lined up with the Jewish world's understanding on the Messiah that he's a supernatural man, but he's not God. That is heresy. That is blasphemy. That is doctrinally obviously wrong. It is seeped into this country. When we lived in San Diego, a few miles from where we lived, there was a congregation, a messianic congregation. <clears throat> they uh, split over the deity of Jesus. Half of them said, we don't believe Jesus is God. The other half said, we do believe that. And they separated and went different ways. But I also want to give you uh, an example from the Tree of Life Messianic Congregation down in San Diego uh, and their statement of faith. See, and, and the problem, even though they would say they believed in the deity of Christ and, and the Trinity, when you, when you read there, and I, this, I got their doctrinal statement back in, and, and I put it, and there's no clear statement concerning the Trinity, the deity of Christ, the virgin birth, in any of their literature. For example, here's what they say. We believe that the God of Israel is the one and only God and the creator and redeemer of all things. Therefore, we strive to dedicate our lives to his worship and service. Well, as far as that goes, that's good. But it doesn't say anything about who the redeemer actually is. And is God a triune God or anything? It went on. We believe that in the fullness of time, God sent his son, Yeshua, Jesus, into the world to redeem us from the curses which we incurred through our own disobedience and that of our ancestors. That would be original sin he's talking about. Yeshua entered our world by miraculous birth. What kind of miraculous birth? Well, we know that. <laughs> but maybe it was just, you know, through a test tube. I don't know, you know. Uh, why don't they say virgin birth? But anyway, through a miraculous birth. Um, lived a perfectly obedient life, gave himself as the unblemished sacrifice for our sins, surrendering to death at the hands of the Roman authorities. God raised him from the dead according to the words of the prophets, received him back into his heavenly home, where he is now seated at God's own right hand. Therefore, it is our privilege to proclaim forgiveness and life through his name and to honor him in all that we do. It's what's not said that's, that's concerning. In Tree of Life, Shalom and, Shalom and Welcome to the Tree of Life uh, paper they handed out to visitors, it, gives, it states this. 
Terms like Christ, Christian, unsaved Jew, convert, baptized, Trinity, and cross conjure up to the most Jewish minds images of pogroms, inquisitions, crusades, holocaust, assimilation, or spiritual genocide. It often leaves our Jewish people with a distorted view of who Yeshua really is and presents him as some sort of alien pagan mythological deity. These terms are not a part of our vocabulary. We are an authentic Jewish community that sets the record straight concerning the Jewish Messiah. Well, how can you be an authentic Jewish community when the Jewish community rejects all those things and the concept of them, the truth of them? Uh, how do you set the record straight concerning the Jewish Messiah when you won't use the term con uh, Trinity or, or, or that type of thing? It's what's not said that's as bad as what's said, um, very sadly. How about salvation? And this is a uh, problem throughout many, not all, not all. The, the congregation we will worship in next Saturday uh, is not a Messianic congregation. They worship on Saturday because that's the off day. I've said that many, many times. You want to get the body together, Saturday is the day off. It's Shabbat. It's a Jewish day. Sunday is the first day of the work week. That's why they worship on Saturday. It's not to say that there aren't some people in congregation that might be more Messianic Judaism, but the, but the, the leadership itself, to my best of my knowledge, is not at all that way. So on. Now, um, how about salvation? Recently, this is 2003, a delegation from the Union of Messianic Jewish Congregations held a conference in Israel. In the course of their visit, they gave a generous donation to a secular Jewish organization, which caught the attention of the media. Two delegates were asked by an admittedly hostile reporter for the Jerusalem Post newspaper, quote, so are Jews who don't believe in Jesus doomed to hell? The delegate responded, no, absolutely not. And as a result, the article reported, quote, he, Rich Nickel, said that the UMJC, Union of Messianic Jewish Congregations, uh, does not believe that Jesus, Jews who have not accepted Jesus the Messiah are doomed to hell. Well, my Bible reads differently. Kinzer replied to Robinson and Rosen's article in October 2003 in Havarah, The Challenge of Our Messianic Movement, Part 2, by writing this in part by Kinzer. I also am quoted as saying the following, quote, because of the validity of the Abrahamic covenant, I believe it's still as, po still as possible for a Jew who doesn't know Yeshua to have a living relationship with God just as a Christian. Robinson and Rosen concluded that my statement is clearly an example of two-covenant theology, which says that Jews already have a covenant with God through Abraham and so do not need Jesus in order to find salvation. Admittedly, such a statement could be an example of dual-covenant theology, but it is not clearly so. And in the mouth of a Messianic Jewish leader, one can safely assume that there's probably a different way of construing the remark. Dual covenant theology holds that Jews and Christians have two distinct and equally valid paths to God. Christians come to God through the, through the covenant established by Yeshua's sacrifice, whereas the Messianic Jews who believe in dual covenant theology, uh, whereas the relationship of Jews to God is through the God's covenant with Abraham and his descendants. I do not know of any Messianic Jews who believe in dual covenant theology. 
for this theological framework is no place for Messianic Judaism. Despite raising the specter of dual covenant theology, it appears that Robinson and Rosen also recognize that I do not embrace such a position, for they proceed to summarize my view as the belief that God has already accepted them, in other words, non-Messianic Jews, in Yeshua. I do believe that the Abrahamic covenant offers Jewish people access to God in and through Yeshua. That does mean, not mean that all Jews, by virtue of being Jews, have a right relationship with God. It does mean that God's favor still rests upon Israel, and he makes a way for humble and faithful members of his people to enter his presence through the unrecognized mediation of Israel's Messiah. In other words, he believes in dual covenant theology. I mean, he's trying to cover it up. He, he's saying, you know, oh, there's some bad Jews, they can't get in. But good Jews are under the Abrahamic covenant, so they have salvation without Jesus. But Gentiles are Christians, which is the same thing. This is wrong on salvation. By the way, uh, John Hagee, you know who John Hagee is? He believes this too. He embraced it many years ago. He's taught it. And when he was called on it, he tried, he's tried to backtrack as much as he could on it. But he embraced this dual covenant theology too. Rich Nick, Ron Rich Nickel, Messianic rabbi of Congregation Rock, Israel, in Needham, Massachusetts, past president of UMJC, vice president of the IMJA, in a letter to Bob Mendelson, leader of Jews for Jesus Australia branch, said this. The message I hear from Jewish missions groups is very different from my message. All Jews are lost and hell-bound except for the tiny minority who believe in Jesus. He's saying that's what Jewish mission groups teach. And I surely do not deny the realities of either eternal bliss for the righteous or judgment for the wicked. But I feel far less certain as to who exactly, go, as to exactly who goes where than I did in an earlier stage of my spiritual journey. That's rejecting the clear teaching of the Word of God. The last page as we close. A recent Yale University thesis written by a Jewish believer on the UMJC and the Messianic Jewish Alliance of America included some disturbing quotes from Tony Eaton, the UMJC treasurer and Messianic rabbi of Simchat Israel Messianic Congregation, and from Kinzer, Mark Kinzer. Eaton is quoted as saying this, quote, If Abraham Heshkel, he was a very famous Jewish man, is not in heaven, I don't belong there either, regardless of what I think about Jesus. This is a person who had a deep personal connection with God, didn't believe in Jesus, Heshkel. The day is going to come in the judgment when all those, these devout Jews are going to come before the Messiah. When they approach him, they're going to look at him and say, didn't I know you? And he'll say, yeah, you did. You just didn't know my name. Also, says Eaton, the Talmud says all Israel has a place in the world to come because God made a covenant with our ancestors. It's not an obsession for Jews to worry about post-mortem bless. That's an obsession, obsession with evangelical Christians. The focus on redemption and salvation in the Christian world is wrong. God's role is primarily as a consummator, bringing creation to completion. Redemption is there, but it's not the focus. That's, that, what a sad statement. What a sad statement. They're also very intellectual, uh, ecumenical. 
Uh, many of the Messianic Jewish leaders are ecumenical. In 2002, a booklet was written by Peter Hawken titled, Toward Jerusalem, Council to the Vision Story. What, what the Jewish and, and, and Catholic world primarily wanted to do was they wanted to have a, 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 a Jerusalem council. Where, when and where is the first Jerusalem council recorded? Acts 15. That was the first Jerusalem council. And they determined some things about practice. They want to have a Jerusalem Council today. That's what this whole thing is about. So they came out with this booklet, came out with a second one also. And it's defined this way, toward Jerusalem Council 2. It's a vision statement that has, quote, an initiative of repentance and reconciliation between the Jewish and Gentile segments of the church. The vision is that one day there will be a second council of Jerusalem that will be in important respect, the inverse of the first council described in Acts 15. Whereas the first council was made up of Jewish believers in Yeshua, Jesus, who decided not to impose on the Gentiles the requirements of the Jewish law, so the second council would be made up of Gentile leaders who would recognize and welcome the Jewish believers in Yeshua without requiring them to abandon their Jewish identity and practice, in other words, keeping the law. Now. The Jewish members of the steering committee include some of the most prominent members in Messianic Judaism. Dan Juster, Marty Waldman, Jonathan Burnus. Some of the Gentile members of the steering committee were Johannes Fickbauer, a Catholic deacon from Vienna, Austria, founder of an ecumenical charismatic community in Vienna in the 1970s. Since 98, the personal delegate of the Archbishop of Vienna, and so on. Brian Cox, an Episcopal priest in Santa Barbara, California. Peter Hawken, a Roman Catholic priest presently living in Maryland, and one sp spot was held open for a representative from the Orthodox Church. Talk about ecumenical. Now, let me close with this conclusion. This is by David Barron. David Barron was a Jewish believer who primarily lived in the 1800s. He may have died in the early 1900s. Um, he wrote of the dangers of the Messianic movement in 1911. Well, he died in the early 1900s because uh, he wrote in 1911. He was part of the Hebrew Christian Alliance movement. The article was titled Messianic Judaism or Judaizing Christianity, and party warns this. Number one, the national continuity of Israel as the everlasting nation and the restoration to their own land and future blessing among the nations of the earth are guaranteed by the covenants and promises of God which can never fail. But what these Judaizing brethren forget is, first, that during the period of Israel's national unbelief, a new thing is being formed out of Jew and Gentile, yea, from all kindreds and tribes of the earth. God is gathering out a people for his name. This new people, whose calling is heavenly, whose inheritance is incorruptible, fills also the position and fulfills the mission of Israel during the interval of this present parenthetical dispensation. It is the kielah, the ecclesia, the church, or the congregation of God. It is holy nation through which he is during the present time carrying out his purpose on the earth. It's the church. Secondly, Christ being rejected by Israel and despised by the world in general, those who profess allegiance to him and become members of the body of which he is the head must ready, be ready to take up the cross and follow him. And one very heavy, part, very heavy part of the cross is, one, is the separation 
which it often involves to disciples, even from among Gentiles, and almost invariably to Jewish believers, from those near and dear to him. Think of Alan. So, Alan, you know, the photographer. So also during this much longer period of national apostasy, God's tabernacle is removed from the camp of corporate official Judaism. And everyone from among Israel who in truth seeks the Lord must be prepared, quote, to go forth unto him without the camp bearing his reproach. Thirdly, if there is one truth more emphasized than another in the New Testament, it is the unity, interrelation, interdependence of Jews and Gentiles in the one true church of Christ, in which there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female, but all are one in Christ Jesus. Now to say that in the one church of Christ, one set of rules, one attitude in relation to certain rites and observances, and joined in the law, and certainly earth, certain earthly or national hopes and expectations befit and are incumbent on its Gentiles members is nothing less than trying to try to raise up again the middle wall of partition, which Christ by his death hath broken down and to introduce confusion into the one house of the living God. We need to bear his reproach. Be prepared for rejection. This type of movement is growing. Um, the Hebrew Roots Movement. I remember when we built this building, the electrician, who's a Gentile, uh, it was part of the Hebrew Roots Movement. He, I think he came to one Bible study here, maybe two. But he totally rejected what we believed and taught. He said, we are not Jewish enough. I'm 100% Jewish. He's 100% Gentile. I'm not Jewish enough, and he is? Ay, 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 ay. Give me a break. So, um, Kathy, before I finish. Yeah, and most, most groups today are, unfortunately. And I was going to close by one, one of the difficulties that we, most of you are aware, we have started looking, Jewish Awareness Ministries has started looking for a new executive director. One of the difficulties is with the explosion of the Messianic movement over the last, oh, well, since 1971 or so it started. So what do we have, 45, 47, almost 50 years? Um, and many, many Jewish believers today are in that movement. We are not messianic here. We do not embrace the movement. We've got it written in our documents. We've got it written in our, some of the books we publish, some of our distinct, distinctives, uh, because we see it as unbiblical. But almost all of the Jewish missions, not all, but almost all of the Jewish missions in, in the world today, let alone the United States, have gone into this. That removes a large pool of candidates for this position. Um, I was told by one person who would probably be interested in this position. He attends a Messianic congregation and yada, yada, yada. And I was very polite to the guy who told me about it. And I said, well, uh, you know, we're looking. <laughs> so we're not looking in that direction. Yes. So, in Messianic congregations, from 1 to 10, with 1 not being that bad and 10 being very bad, 
Yeah, they don't believe the deity of Christ. You've got them all over the board. So, so you can't make a general statement li like that. But you can, you know, when the head of the, uh, the United uh, Messianic Jewish Alliance or whatever it's called is foggy on salvation and not clear on the deity of Christ, he's the leader. If the leader is like that, what about those under him? That type of thing. Um, so we, 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 we see it as a, as a movement that we don't want to be involved in. Um, and um, it's very sad. It's, and I could go into a lot more details. Now, most of you probably never heard of this before, and I just wanted to give you some background. This is what this passage is addressing. Leave Judaism. Go outside the camp, go on to Jesus, and that means to his body, the local church, made up of Jew and Gentile, and, 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 and the new covenant practices that we have, that type of thing, and don't go back. And the application could be for all of us. I know, I've, I've talked to, um, I, know, I know evangelicals who have gone back to the Catholic Church. When we lived in San Diego, the, the, there was an organization, Evangelicals for, for, for or, or I forget, Catholic Evangelicals, whatever. Um, Something like that, yeah. Um, and um, I remember a debate that our pastor had, and I went and listened to it. And, oh, yeah. Believers going back to Catholicism. And, you know, let me get, how about the vice president of our country, Mike Pence? He claims to be an evangelical Catholic. Evangelical Catholic is an oxymoron. You can't be an evangelical and be a Catholic because the doctrines of both groups are diametrically opposed. They are completely opposite in many ways. Not all, but, but so many of them. You cannot be evangelical and be Catholic. But there are many who claim to be evangelical Catholics. Um, it, it's just foolishness. It's not biblical. It's, not, it's sad, that type of thing. So, so is the vice president born again? Uh, not if he holds on to the doctrines of Catholicism. Uh, he is certainly one confused individual when it comes to spiritual things. Uh, he may be good conservatively in his beliefs, his you know, uh, but when it comes to spirituality and understanding the body, he is just totally confused. We've got to leave our religion and fully, fully embrace Christ and his church, and the practices that the, uh, the New Testament teaches, meaning the, um, the law of Christ. We've talked about the law of Christ, that type of thing. Before we pray, any questions? There's a lot of dessert. Any, any questions? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this uh, time, and Lord... Um, we need to go outside the camp and, and, and embrace you fully and, and, and your church where, where Jew and Gentile worship together and uh, that's what you've commanded us to. And each one of us needs to leave behind that false religion that we were saved out of, uh, whatever it might be. So Father, we commit this to you. We ask your blessings upon our fellowship, on the food, and we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. Shalom. This is Mark Robinson. 
Executive Director of Jewish Awareness Ministries, thanking you for listening to our Bible study. These Jewish Awareness Podcasts are a teaching ministry of Jewish Awareness Ministries. If you have questions about the study that you just listened to, or would like additional information, go to our website, jewishawareness.org, email us at office at jewishawareness.org, or call us at 919-275-4477. Shalom.